Well, hello, hi, Wickham. It's great to be with you. Uh, thank you so much for having me this morning. I've, I've actually wanted to come to the church for some years. We've been having some back and forth with Neil and then John about whether or not I could come and so on. And obviously, this isn't quite how any of us imagined it, as I'm sure same is true for all of us at the moment. But it's a real joy to be able to be with you today and to look at the Word of God together. And there's part of this series you've been doing on the kingdom. I wanted to spend some time looking at the, the sticky, tricky bit of what we believe about the kingdom of God which is the tensions of the kingdom or the puzzles or the paradoxes or the the problems you get when you try and put together two things that both seem to be true when it comes to the kingdom of God. If you're joining us for the first time, you you know, the kingdom of God basically is what the world is like when God becomes king. It's the rule of God. It's the realm. It's not a particular nation state or anything like that, but it's the realm of God's dominion and authority and in-chargeness over the world. That's what the kingdom of God is. Jesus talked about it all the time. It was at the heart of his message. It's at the heart of Christian thinking about the world. And it's what we are called to preach and act out as we go out into the world. And we've been looking at various things in this series about how the kingdom works and what we should know about it. But one of the things that's tricky when it comes to a doctrine of the kingdom is that there are a number of tensions you have to work through if you follow Jesus's teaching on what the kingdom of God is and how it works. And so we're going to read from Matthew chapter 13. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn there. If not, it'll appear on the screen. Um, But these are some of the, not all of them, but some of the tensions we have to work through when we consider what the world is like when God becomes king. So I'm going to read a bunch of sections of this long chapter on the kingdom of God and beginning at Matthew 13 and verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And we jump down to verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good wheat in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I'll tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all the seeds. But when it's grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Then jump down to verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. 
Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God. So you have seven stories here about the kingdom of God. The story of the sower, the story of the weeds, the mustard seed, the leaven or the yeast, the treasure, the pearl and the net. Seven stories about the kingdom of God. And as you read them all together and you start thinking about what they mean and what they imply, they cast some interesting light on each other. But they also expose a number of the tensions of the kingdom of God. A number of the things that are simultaneously true of the kingdom, but that seem to be pulling in opposite directions. And it can be a challenge for us to navigate them. But actually, those tensions reflect the realities of the world we're in. And probably all of us, when we think about it, can see examples of those tensions in practice. I, can, I count at least five different tensions that you can see in these parables. The first tension you have to face in these stories, and probably in your daily life, is that the kingdom of God involves both success and failure, right? It is like a great big net which has loads of good fish in it and loads of bad fish in it. So there is cod, but there is also, which is the, to me is the prince of fish. Like when I was a child, it was, my mum used to cook with it quite a lot, so I thought it was just a sort of ordinary thing. But I think the more fish I've eaten, the less I'm impressed with fancy fish, and the more I just rejoice in the goodness of cod. And so cod is just wonderful, and at the, that, that pun was entirely accidental, by the way. And then on the other hand, there's urchin, which I once ate at a very fancy restaurant and thought it would, might be nicer than you think, but it is not. It tastes vile, and I still can sort of feel the, the taste here. It's horrible, horrible tasting fish. And Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is... Full, and, and like a net that's full of really beautiful, glorious stuff. And it's full of really uh, stuff. And it's not only got urchins, but it's got, you know, bottle tops and Coke cans and crisp packets in it. That's what the, the kingdom of God is like a huge net that involves a lot of good and a lot of bad. It's like the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a field with lots of plants, but also lots of weeds, which all sprout up together, which is what happens in my garden and probably yours unless you're quite good at gardening she says yeah there's grass there and rose bush planted by my father and yeah it's very nice at the same time stinging nettles under brambles and that's just what the way the kingdom of god is like that as well and you think why is that true why why wouldn't the, the kingdom of god be only about good but actually the kingdom of god often includes a lot of things within it that are not good and that are going to be sorted later the kingdom of god jesus says is like a man who went out to sow and only one in four of the seeds produced any fruit. But the ones that did produce fruit were crazily successful and produced a hundred times or 60 times or 30 times more than was sown. Now, that's, that's been my experience in Christian ministries, for sure, is that I find actually an awful lot of the preaching of the gospel you do or an awful lot of the good works you do don't necessarily seem to bear any fruit at all. They seem to land on dry ground that people are ah, not really interested or angrier than that. But the ones that do bear fruit often become self-replicating and cause far more fruit than you'd expected. So the failures are very common, but then the successes outweigh the failures in their scale because they become self-replicating. And actually that principle implies 
applies to, not just to the kingdom. It's a well-known economic principle, often called Pareto's law or the Pareto principle, which is you know like basically about a quarter of your customers produce three quarters of your revenue, or a quarter of your staff or your volunteers in a church do three quarters of the work, or three quarters of the praying or the giving. Or whatever. it happens in a lot of situations, and it's like a kingdom principle actually, not just a Pareto principle. And I find that enormously encouraging. Because it means I'm expecting three, three quarters of the things I do not really to be very fruitful at all. Let's be blunter. I'm expecting 75% of my efforts to fail. But the 25% of my efforts that succeed will cause huge harvest. And so I am allowing for and in fact expecting and leaning into the kingdom of God, not only containing success, which is what I want all the time, but actually a lot of failure. You know, don't want to, as a preacher, you probably shouldn't do this, but I'm like, I'm expecting that three of my four sermons just fall to the, people go, oh, that's all right. And then occasionally you might say something and that changes someone's life. And actually that would be true of your work, whatever the work is, that actually a lot of our activity, you think, I'm not seeing a huge return, but the times I do, it can keep giving to generation after generation. The kingdom of God involves success and failure and obviously if you know that of the seed you sow three quarters of it isn't going to do anything what's the answer well you just sow a lot more seed and the more you sow the more fruit you'll reap the kingdom of god involves success and failure secondly the kingdom of god involves both transformation and opposition so the kingdom of god is a bit like leaven jesus says which is a a yeasty lump of dough that a woman, did you notice this word, hid in three measures of flour? Did that strike you when I read the words earlier? Like a woman took and hid. You think, that's not, that's not what, my mum used to make bread at home, and now it's become quite a big thing. A lot of people have bread makers at home. You may, and you probably very rarely, regardless of looking around and going, Shh, I hope nobody's watching, and just hiding it in. That's not the word you'd normally use, is it? You just put it in. But Jesus uses the word hid. He's implying there is something secret and obscure and hidden about the kingdom of God, but that even though it's hidden, it gradually leavens the whole loaf without you knowing how it happened. So the kingdom of God actually involves the sort of transformation and the leavening of the entire world from a very small start. But it also involves opposition because it is also a little bit like a field in which an enemy has sowed all kinds of weeds while the gardener's asleep. And the wheat and the weeds grow together And we'll never have a weed-free world before Jesus returns. So I'm expecting, as we preach and live the kingdom of God, I'm expecting it to transform the world, like leaven working its way through a lump of dough. But I'm also expecting it to face a lot of opposition, a lot of problems, a lot of pushback. The kingdom of God is going to transform the world, as in many ways it has. The values and ethical frameworks that you and I make. Every time somebody, I often think this, whenever somebody refers to human rights, I think the only reason, even if they're not a believer, and many of them are not, I hear and I think, yeah, the only reason that that category exists is because Christianity has gradually shaped the immoral imagination of an entire world such that it now seems obvious that a human being has certain rights simply because they are human. And the church has not always lived up to that, of course. But that's that's Christian teaching. And that's come about because the kingdom of God has spread and transformed the world. And yet at the same time, the kingdom is being opposed by the world in many areas, often violently. And if you were to go to Yemen today or many, many other places, you'd see that. And often 
the kingdom of God will involve the wheat and the weeds at the same time. It will involve leavening the lump and seeing weeds on opposition against it at the same time. And that's what it's like to live in Britain today. The kingdom of God involves transformation, yes, and opposition. Oh, didn't want that. But the two of them come together and it's a tension of the kingdom. The third tension is that the kingdom of God involves both breakthrough and obscurity. Now, it involves breakthrough in the sense of the mustard seed, doesn't it? The mustard seed is tiny, it starts small, but it becomes larger than all the garden branches, the garden bushes, so the birds come and nest in the branches. The kingdom is like a mustard tree, right? Starts small, but it becomes big, visible. People look and say, that's the kingdom. Great, isn't that really good? It's, it, it involves breakthrough, it involves recognition, you might say. At the same time as we've already seen with the leaven, it involves deep obscurity. Because that's why this, Jesus uses the word hidden. It involves leaven being unseen, mundanely, quietly, secretly, invisibly working its way through. Doing the work of the kingdom sometimes means you become like a mustard tree and everyone can see you and even nest in your branches and say, oh, thanks for helping out. You run a, a project that particularly serves people in poverty or whatever it may be, and people come to you and say, I'm so glad the church is doing that. There is recognition, there is visibility and breakthrough for that thing the church is doing. Meanwhile, the church is doing something else that is equally important and nobody cares. And when people do see it, they complain about it. Or they don't even know it's happening. It looks like it's obscure. It might be what you do day by day. It might be your prayers. It might be you getting up in the morning and kissing your husband and going downstairs and getting the kids ready for school and then going off and working and then coming home and doing it all, collapsing into bed, exhausted at the end of the day. And feeling like, Lord, I just need the strength for tomorrow to carry on. It's invisible. It's obscure. Nobody rings you up and says, thank you so much. That great job you're doing with the praying and the parenting and the being kind at the water cooler at work. And yet the kingdom of God is spreading invisibly, obscurely through your very ordinary activity in a day, just as it is spreading through the very visible breakthrough activity that might be happening somewhere else. Now, in our culture... We generally want everything to be breakthrough rather than obscurity. That's true of Britain. It's true of the West as a whole. Instagram culture, let's take a picture of this, put that online. Yeah, it's like the Lego movie. Everything's awesome, yes. And actually, no, most things are not awesome. Most things are are kind of irrelevant. They're kind of dull. They're kind of mundane. Most of the ways the kingdom of God comes in my life and in your life are nothing to write home about. But that's where a lot of the work happens. And our culture would prioritise the big and breakthrough. And sometimes even our church culture would prioritise that too. Yet at the same time, we've got to acknowledge that an awful lot of the time, the kingdom comes in obscurity. Now, you don't want to overcorrect and become inverse snobs about the whole thing and saying, oh, your, re- your ministry is recognised. That means you're less spiritual. Nothing like that. I mean, there's, there's no value in that either. But let's do both. Let's, if you like, let's pray for revival and invite people to the Alpha Course. You know, let's rejoice in miraculous healings and rejoice in the existence of pharmacies. You know, the kingdom of God might involve big breakthrough, might involve obscurity, might be both. The Arabic proverb says, trust God and tie up your camel. And I think there's wisdom there, at least when it comes to the kingdom of God. It comes in breakthrough and obscurity. Fourth tension is that the kingdom of God involves both gift and sacrifice. The kingdom of God is a free gift that costs you everything. 
Such a strange tension. But that's what Jesus seems to teach in these parables, right? The kingdom of God is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and then he sold everything in his joy in order to buy it. It's like a pearl of great value for which a merchant had to sell everything he had. Right? So the kingdom of God is free. You are walking around one day, you weren't even looking for it, and you stumble across a pearl. Uh, you, sorry, you stumble across treasure. Of course, the merchant was looking for the pearl. But the man who finds the treasure, oh, I wasn't looking for this, and he just finds it. It's just come to him. It's not, he hasn't earned it. He hasn't merited or deserved it. It's just there. It's a gift. The kingdom of God is free. The kingdom of God is the grace of God. It's a gift of God. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the fountain and drink. Come, eat anything you want, free of charge, the prophet says. And yet, that free gift, in order to be taken hold of, costs you everything. It's not just like treasure hidden in a field. It's like treasure hidden in a field which a man had to sell everything he had in order to buy. Taking hold of the the pearl of great price involves selling everything you own. And so when you say to people that the kingdom is the kingdom of God very expensive or is it completely free? The answer is yes. The kingdom of God is both a gift and a sacrifice. It is a gift to you that you cannot deserve and yet you cannot receive the gift unless you give up everything you have. In that sense, it's like a marriage. Right? I don't deserve the love of my wife. If you saw a picture of her, you would see that very quickly. If you met her, you'd see it even more quickly. I don't deserve it. There's nothing I could do to get Rachel to be interested in me. It's a gift. She has been given to me. I revel in the fact that God has created her and created people who are like that and put her in my life. And yet in order to receive the love that she has for me, which is a gift, in order to receive it, I have to give up everything. I have to give up. I have to prioritize her over any other human relationship I have. Rightly. I have to, they, there are all kinds of sacrifices I have to make daily to what I want to do in order to be able to receive the free gift that has come to me in the person of Rachel. And it's exactly the same with the kingdom. In fact, it's even more pronounced with the kingdom. Sometimes when I do this in, in person, I illustrate it by getting somebody to uh, get, hold loads of junk, bags, coats, whatever is available. And they sort of, someone's standing there with this huge mountain of coats and clutter in their hands. And then I take something very valuable, like an iPad, or for many times I've done it. I've done it with a, this crystal decanter that I got given for my wedding um, by a friend of mine, and it's this very valuable crystal decanter. And I and what I do is I stand at one end of the stage, and the person carrying the coats is at the other end, and I throw the decanter across the stage, like through the air, and everybody goes. <gasps> And then what happens, of course, is the person who's holding all the coats drops everything in order to catch this pearl of great price. And the point makes itself, doesn't it? You can hold all kinds of things in your life. And you, you may or may not be able, you can't deserve the kingdom of God. You may or not like these things you're holding on to. You may think they're wonderful. You may not particularly. But all of them have to go if you are going to take hold of the free gift that costs you everything. It's not something you've earned. You don't earn a crystal decanter by dropping coats on the floor. But you cannot receive it unless you do. And the kingdom of God is like treasure. It's like a pearl of great price, which a person sold all that they had in order to find. The kingdom of God involves gift and sacrifice. And finally, the fifth tension is that the kingdom of God is now and not yet. Now, my guess is you probably talked about that already in this series to some degree, but 
A number of Jesus's parables in this passage show that we should expect the kingdom in the here and now. And I know we have been talking about that in this series. You can see crops that are 30, 60 or 100 times what was sown, right? You can see mustard trees. So there it is. That's visible now. It's good fruit. Yay. But then again, several of Jesus's stories indicate that the kingdom's not quite here yet. The wheat and the weeds don't get sorted out until the end. The net with good and bad fish doesn't get sorted out until the end. And for that reason, because of that tension, the very visible presentness of the kingdom and the very obvious futureness of the kingdom, theologians often speak of the kingdom of God as now and not yet. The fancy term for that, if you want to get your money's worth, is inaugurated eschatology, which is the end, the eschaton, has landed in the present and begun, but it hasn't yet finished. It's inaugurated in that sense. The kingdom has commenced, but it hasn't yet been consummated. The German theologian Oskar Kuhlmann described it like the difference between D-Day and VE Day. And you may have heard this illustration before, that on D-Day, effectively, the result of the Second World War is pretty much settled on the Western Front. But it doesn't actually get completed for another year or more before actually Berlin finally falls. And in that gap between the certainty of winning and the actual achievement of winning, that's where the Christian life is lived. It's a great illustration. Personally, I find a a tweak I make, which I find even more helpful, is actually what Winston Churchill said the night that he had heard that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor in December 1941. Because Churchill hears the news, he's woken up, they said the the Americans are in the war, the Japanese have bombed Pearl Harbor. And he writes this extraordinary, he's a good writer, Churchill, he writes this extraordinary paragraph that describes the implications of something for a future that is still long distant. It wonderfully captures the now and the not yet, I think, of the kingdom. He wrote this, I do not pretend to have measured accurately the martial might of Japan, but now at this very moment, I knew the United States was in the war, up to the neck and into the death. So we had won after all. We'd won the war. England would live. Britain would live. The Commonwealth of Nations and the Empire would live. How long the war would last, or in what fashion it would end, no man could tell, nor did I at this moment care. No doubt it would take a long time. Many disasters, immeasurable cost, and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed, and I slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. Now, we can have our questions about his analysis of the war, and the analysis about whether the empire was a good thing, right? That's not the point of this quote. The point is that Churchill is able to see that something has happened in the now that has guaranteed something that's not yet. And he says, this might take many years, might take decades. I might still be, I might have died and we might still be fighting the Second World War. But the result is not in question because of what's just happened in Pearl Harbor. Because now the Americans are in, there is no way that the Japanese and the Germans and their other allies are going to be able to withstand us. None. So I can go to bed and I can sleep certain that victory is mine, even though I haven't seen it yet. And even though many, many more people may have to suffer and die before ultimately we do see it. Now, you transpose that into the language of Christianity and you realize this is the nature of what has happened in Jesus Christ. Right. By dying on the cross and rising from the dead, Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God. And it's now 
And it's also guaranteed that which is not yet, which is that one day all of his enemies are going to be hoovered up and turned into his footstool. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Sin will be no more. The devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and we'll all be done from evil forever. Nothing but glory, beauty, worship, abundance, fruitfulness, creativity for the rest of eternity. And I know that's going to happen because of something that has already happened, even if it means I have to wait for the next four years of warfare or 40 years of warfare or 400 years of warfare. doesn't matter to me because I know there is no more doubt about the end. So I can go to bed and so can you and sleep the sleep of the saved and thankful, safe in the knowledge that the victory of Christ has guaranteed that which is not yet by his resurrection from the dead. And his death on behalf of sinners. And that's a tension that the kingdom of God presents with us that we see every day in our work, in our prayers, in our church life. We are seeing it acted out, are we not, every day in the age of COVID. We're seeing, wow, the kingdom of God is here in this way, but it's not yet there. But actually, I, in the same way as Churchill in a way, I'm able to go to sleep every day going, do you know what? I know that Christ has conquered. There is no more doubt about the end. I don't know when it's going to come. I don't know how long it's going to last or how much suffering it will involve. But I know what the end is. I know it is unmovable and unshakable because the lamb wins and the saints overcome. So saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I can go to bed and sleep the sleep of the saved and thankful. And so can you. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the kingdom of God. We thank you for... Jesus is teaching of it. We thank you even more for his enacting of it, the way that he brought it all to a climax in his death and resurrection and the way that we get to live in it and see it advance, knowing that we get to play a part in its growth and expansion, but ultimately that it does not depend on our achievements, but on the power of God who has already raised Christ from the dead and one day will be all in all. And we thank you in Jesus' name.